and thank you for listening to The History of World War II, Episode 51, The Hardest Day. Last time, we saw the Luftwaffe up the ante in this winner-take-all game by bringing Air Fleet 5 from Norway into what was supposed to be an overwhelming attack. But the forewarning provided by radar, coupled with Air Chief Marshal Downing's insisting on a certain number of squadrons remaining in the north, crushed Goering's hopes as well as many German aircraft. So of the air fleets or Luftlots in German-occupied territory, Air Fleet 2 and 3 were once again on their own. But they still had the numbers to get the job done. Therefore, Sperla and Kesselring did not feel that they had lost anything. So, as Friday, August 16th got a start, the Germans were optimistic. And the weather seemed to be mostly on their side, with a mostly clear day, but haze in the channel. Looking at maps thrown across tables outside in the sunshine, or pinned to a wall in a chateau, the Luftlock commanders looked over southern Britain and smiled, thinking that fighter command could only have about 430 fighters, of which only 300 or so were operational. Surely that small number could not possibly help to protect all that land, all those airfields. But in fact, Downing had 570 Spitfires and Hurricanes, and about 100 more Defiance, Gladiators, and Blemens. He also had about 235 more Spitfires and Hurricanes in reserve. But of course, Gehring couldn't know this. What he also couldn't know was that Downing's problem wasn't one of enough planes. It was not having enough pilots. With about 1,379 trained pilots at his command, being able to put up sufficient aircraft all along the east, south, and west coasts was his real bottleneck. So the Germans were whittling down fighter command's ability to project power, but only because they were killing RAF personnel, not shooting down planes. That morning saw a few reconnaissance flights to the south, but it wasn't until noon that the raids came over the channel. The airfield at West Malling was hit first and hit hard. After the bombers left, the airfield would be inoperable for the next four days. And this attack was only one from a formation of at least 250 strong that came in from the south all the way from the Isle of Wight to just east of Hastings. The Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough was also hit, but again, this did not directly affect fighter command. Bombs were also dropped southwest of London, at Surrey and Wimbledon. To their growing frustration, the air fleets found it impossible to attack fighter command, their aircraft, and airfields, without operating within the greater London area. But, so far, the British had not reacted in any way different than their normal night bombing patterns. Of the different squadrons that responded to this latest raid, 266 Squadron did its part, but paid the price. Four of their planes went down in quick succession, and two of their pilots died, including squadron leader Wilkinson. However, the group commander Carl Ebenshausen of Geschwalder 26 died as well. 266 had only been stationed to the south for a week and had already lost three pilots a few days before. 
but they were still green and fell for the simplest trick. As they dove on the seemingly unprotected bombers about to strike, they missed the ME-109s stationed high above, who dove on them as they dove on the bombers. Altogether, 266 would lose five men from the 12th to the 16th. This fighter command simply could not afford. And by 1 p.m. that afternoon, it was Luflot III's turn. Sperla decided to launch an attack from the Cherbourg Peninsula and simultaneously attack Portsmouth, the air fleet arm at Lee en Solent, which was responsible for naval aircraft, and Tangmere. This would surely stretch out and puncture the thin line of British air defense. And probably due to faulty intelligence, this was only the second time a fighter command sector station like Tangmere was being targeted. So by 1 p.m., 54 JU-87s were on their way to Tangmere. 28 bombers were approaching Lee on Solent, and 22 Stukas were closing in on Portsmouth. However, Sperla was adhering to Goering's new rule about adequate fighter protection. So, at least 214 ME-109s and 43 ME-110s were also aloft, leaving the way for the bombers. The three formations were duly plotted, and soon eight fighter squadrons in all rose to give challenge. Still, it was simply a matter of too many escorts for the fighters defending Portsmouth and Leon Solent. The bombers heading there got through, dropped their loads, and made it home. Heavy damage was inflicted on both targets. However, it was different at Tangmere. As the bombers came in to hit the airfield, every one of Tangmere's aircraft, a 43 squadron, were already in the air and quickly among the Stukas. The bombers completed their bomb run, but paid a heavy price for it. Nine Stukas would not make it home, and at least six more were damaged. But their work was done. Almost every building was hit. Power and water service was cut, and besides the deaths on the ground, 14 Spitfires and Hurricanes, currently undergoing repair, were now designated as write-offs. However, despite the ravaged airstrip, all of 43 Squadron was able to land safely there. With 11 and 12 group so engaged, Sperla's own little experiment was about to pay huge dividends. Against Gehring's word, the air fleet commander decided to send eight Stukas, a modest amount, to White, again to take a stab at the Ventner RDF station. He believed, much more than his commander, of the value of disrupting these radio-slash-radar towers. 152 Squadron tried to turn them away, but this smaller raid came in at the same time as the more massive one to the north. So 152 turned to help their comrades. The result was that Ventner was hit with 22 bombs. This time, the RDF system would be down for seven days. To help take up the slack, a mobile reserve station was set up on the east side of the island on August 23rd at Bembridge. Besides the Ventner RDF Tower on White and Tangmere's airfield, the Luftwaffe had also drawn blood in the air. And one of the casualties was the first American killed in the Battle of Britain, Billy Fisk. Despite damage to his plane, he managed to crash land at Tangmere, 
but was badly burned. He died of shock the next day. And there will be a short bio of him at the end of the episode. And, as can be imagined, both sides of the Atlantic mourned his loss. But another pilot, James Nicholson, was luckier. Engaging the raiders over Portsmouth, he stalked a 110 and was not aware of the 109s higher above. A 109 dove down on him and hit his plane with four cannon shells. There was immediate damage to his cockpit window, his foot, and his reserve tank that then caught fire. The flames rose in the cockpit, and Nicholson lifted his feet to keep them safe. The situation was hopeless. So Nicholson prepared to bail out, but then another 110 came into his view. So he sat back down in his seat, tried to keep his feet away from the growing fire as best he could, and then proceeded to take aim at the 110 and shot it down. Only then did he bail out. But as he was floating down, he was about to find out that his day was not over. Some home guard men were watching him come down and, under standing orders, started shooting at him. One of them managed to hit him in the backside. He was taken to a hospital and would need more than a year of work and recovery to get over the burns to his hands, face, neck, and feet, as well as the bullet wound. But by September of 41, he would be flying again. Nicholson was the only member of Fighter Command to be awarded the Victorian Cross during the Battle of Britain. On a much lighter note, the Luftwaffe also managed to take out Tony Wood Scowen, again the pilot with bad eyesight due to tuberculosis as a child. As a part of 43 Squadron, he had been over Tangmere, helping take out numerous Stukas, of which two were Tonys. A ME-109 then lodged a bullet in his radiator, and then three more were soon on him. He dodged and weaved as best he could, and managed to crash land on the Isle of Wight. But the crash knocked out three of his front teeth, a small price to pay for two Stukas. That afternoon, Tony took a ferry across to Southampton and stayed in a hotel. The next morning, he called his superior, told him what happened, and to send someone to pay the bill at the hotel, if they wanted him back. They did, and so they did. Later that afternoon, saw two more raids, one at Bryes Norton, halfway between London and Bristol, and the other a strafing run on Manston. At least 50 RAF aircraft were destroyed on the ground, but, fortunately for the British, only a handful were fighters. Most were training aircraft. Toward evening, Churchill, who was on his way from London to Chequers, stopped by Park's headquarters at Uxbridge, which was on the way. With him was his chief of staff, General Ismay. The Prime Minister watched as all of Park's aircraft were launched, dealing with another afternoon that raid of 100-plus German aircraft to the southeast at Dover, as well as the Thames Estuary. But then, more bandits were plotted as they crossed the channel. This was a 70-plus raid. They went on to attack airfields in the south and southeast. And although the Prime Minister did not know the detailed workings of Fighter Command, that 10 Group and 12 Group could and did help out, 
He was clearly moved by Levin Group giving it all they had. As they got back to his car, Churchill said to Ismay, Don't speak to me. I have never been so moved. What he just witnessed reminded him very much of when he was in France and asked General Gamla about his reserves. So, too, did it seem that Fighter Command was throwing in everything they had, and yet the Germans had more. About five minutes later, Churchill leaned over a bit and said, Never in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. Ismay remembered these words and repeated them to his wife when he got home. That night, bombing was slighter than of late. Between 10 and 11 p.m., a few raids flew over the airfields in East Anglia. Further north, Martlesham and Harwich was also hit. When those raids ended, the Thames estuary received its regular attention around 11.30 that night. About the same time, White plotted bandits as best it could, but those were guessed to be mine lane. Afterward, some raiders were plotted in the Bristol Channel area, and although a few fighters were sent up to intercept, none of the bombers were engaged. The indiscriminate day and night bombing killed 72 civilians and injured 192 more. And the day's air battles claimed the lives of 16 RAF pilots, with 19 more being injured. Losses for the day were 22 for the RAF and 45 for the Luftwaffe. Total reported losses to date were 217 and 429, respectively. Meanwhile, in East Africa, both sides accepted the inevitable. Italian troops consolidated their gains, cautiously moved forward, but purposefully did not engage the British rearguard, who were themselves moving back towards Berbera. One by one, the remaining hills in British control were abandoned, while the main body of troops were embarking onto Royal Naval ships using an all-tide jetty made by the Navy. Although this was another successful evacuation, the British were not giving in completely. That day, the British sub Osiris sank the Italian steamer Mora, 50 miles west of Albania. Also, Sunderland aircraft of 210 Squadron attacked U-Boat 51 with depth charges, 170 miles northwest of Ireland. The sub was severely damaged, but survived the attack. Still, this was the first successful depth charge attack by a Coastal Command aircraft. But to balance this out, the German Navy, specifically their U-boats, were pressing their attack. Now operating in wolf packs, they dared the naval escorts and hunted down the convoys, desperately trying to keep Great Britain in the war. That day, convoy OB-197 came under attack from U-boat 30, 46, and 48, about 300 miles northwest of Ireland. The Swedish steamer Hedron and the British steamer Clan McPhee were attacked and sunk. Combined, they suffered 75 deaths, but had 61 crew members rescued. Another ship, the Dutch vessel MV Alcinos, was damaged, but stayed afloat. However, it had to be towed 
to Gurick, Scotland. Closer to Ireland, U-boat 100 sank the British merchant vessel Empire Merchant, which had been heading to Jamaica with cargo and mail. Seven of its crew were killed, but 48 others were later rescued. That night, Bomber Command flew 150 sorties over Germany, from the Ruhr to the far towns of Luna, where a major chemical complex was housed. They also hit Augsburg, where Messerschmitts were made. Seven of the bombers did not return. However, like the German night bombings, it was hard to accurately gauge their level of success. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The next day, Saturday, August 17th, saw fine weather, but no real raids. This was probably due to the sheer exhaustion of the Luftwaffe pilots and their ground crews. Fighter Command contentedly took this time to repair airfields, rest and tend to their pilots and their aircraft, while the civilians tried to get back to some sense of normalcy with the help of the WAVES and other organizations. Meanwhile, the group commanders and Downing discussed their ever-increasing shortage of pilots. On this day, Downing would step out of his insular world and ask Bomber Command about borrowing or transferring some of their pilots. Losses so far were hard on everyone, and the planes were readily fixed or replaced, but not the brave men who used them to defend the British skies. Again, the weather was mostly clear, but the south, southwest, and east coasts saw reconnaissance flights mostly, except for single or small numbers of aircraft looking for opportunities. A few bombs were dropped on airfields to the southeast, but as soon as the RAF fighters were launched, the German aircraft made for France. The same result occurred when raiders flew near convoys to the southwest and east. However, the alert AA gunners at Southampton took out a bomber early in the morning. That night, everyone on the British side of the channel was expecting, or rather hoping, this relatively calm day would continue into the night. And at first, it seemed as if their prayers all over Britain were being answered. But around 11 p.m., 
the frequency of bombs being dropped sharply increased. From then until early morning, high-explosive bombs were dropped across the Midlands, Merseyside, South Wales, and on their airfields. As the sun came up on the 18th, there were discovered 13 RAF personnel deaths with 15 more injured, while 10 civilians were killed with 66 more injured. Bomber Command got back to work that night flying 102 sorties. Some headed for Germany proper, but others made their way to airfields in Holland, Belgium, and France. But this time, all aircraft reported home after their mission. Again, their accuracy was anyone's guess. In East Africa, the British are all but ready to leave British Somaliland. All remaining units were on the beaches of Berbera. The Italians were ordered to let them go in peace, staying about 40 miles away from the capital. Mussolini, keeping his own counsel, wanted whatever he could get from the British without too much bloodshed, but was perhaps keeping his options open by not trying to annihilate the last of the British forces. It was either that or the British cruiser HMS series was close by, covering the evacuation. And not being able to read Il Duce's mind, shells from the series found the forward Italian troops. Soon the last British soldier was gone, and they counted their losses. 38 wounded and 102 killed. Mussolini's orders were wise in that the Italians had already lost 465 killed, with another 1,530 wounded. Back in London, Churchill, who felt that fighter command was giving at least as well as they got, felt comparatively that Somaliland had been lost without a fight. But Commander-in-Chief Middle East General Wavell replied, A bloody butcher's bill is not the sign of a good tactician. This enraged Churchill, since he had his own battles in the Commons, but he did not sack Wavell or Major General Godwin Austin yet. And in a move that probably crushed Mussolini's hopes of an eventual peace between Italy and Great Britain, the Royal Navy's Mediterranean fleet sailed from Alexandria, Egypt, to bombard the western Libyan port of Bardia. Around 7 a.m., the battleships HMS Warspite, Malaya, and Romilies, with the cruiser HMS Kent, along with 12 destroyers, shelled Bardia and the groups of Italian troops 12 miles south at the Fort Campuzzo. Unfortunately for the Italians, their light coastal batteries were unable to reach the British warships. Sunday, August 18th, was to be the day. This was the day that the Luftwaffe, Gehrings Luftwaffe, would destroy, would smash fighter command. The day before, while their pilots were resting and their planes were being repaired, the air fleet commanders were given intelligence that said, based on reported German air victories, combined with the estimated British fighter production, fighter command was down to about 300 fighters. But, in fact, fighter command had at their disposal somewhere between 630 and just over 1,000 fighters, depending on how you counted them and if you included how many were serviceable or in storage or used for training. But this argument was moot. What mattered 
were the number of pilots ready to take to the skies. Training for the RAF pilots had already been reduced from a month to two weeks. As the days went by during the Battle of Britain, the number of days a pilot spent in a Spitfire or hurricane were now down to mere hours before being thrown to a squadron. And German tactics were sound, but their strategy was flawed, bloody, and wasteful. And their faulty intelligence only exacerbated this. But even that was quickly becoming irrelevant. However flawed, it was starting to work. It cost them dearly, but it was starting to work. As for the German pilots themselves, they were tired of hearing how easy this was going to be. That the invasion wasn't even going to be necessary. That fighter command was almost broken. And Gehring's moves were setting up his ultimate checkmate. The match was practically over. Except the German pilots were looking around and noticing their missing comrades. Their planes were shot up. Their crews were working all hours to repair them. And that they would be up there again on the morrow. And all that they could do was obey orders, hope for the best, and even then, hope that they had enough fuel to make it back over the channel. And for Luftflot too, that was about to become a whole lot harder. Sperla, who believed in Gehring's plan, was following his superior's ideas by moving his attacks more inland as the battle went on. The corpulent air fleet commander planned to bomb Hornchurch, North Weald, Biggin Hill, and Kenley. And these were all sector stations. Clearly, he had already forgotten or made excuses for the losses on the 16th. He also planned on using a relatively fresh Geschwalder of fighters against Godsport, Ford, and Thorny Island near the Hampshire coast. The problem was, these locations had nothing to do with fighter command. Again, faulty intelligence. Not that Sperla was admitting to any faults of the Luftwaffe, but if there were any, they would be erased by the simple fact that every fighter and every bomber of the two major air fleets would be used this day. And as other days came to have titles attached to them, so would this one. The hardest day. But there were two noticeable absences from the day's fighting. Mulders and Gallant. They were on their way to Gehring's Karen Hall. The leader of the Luftwaffe had his own ideas about how to put an end to fighter command, and these young bloods would be his new disciples. The weather was fine, but hazy in the morning, which certainly bode well for the Luftwaffe pilots. The Germans had their plans, they just needed targets. So that morning, between 9 and 9.30, three reconnaissance flights were plotted over Dover and the Straits. Then, another three were flown up the Thames estuary between 10.30 and 11 a.m. And as the last reconnaissance aircraft made its way back over the channel, the haze started to clear. By midday, it was starting, and the RDF stations had no trouble seeing what was coming. Over Calais was the largest build-up they had ever seen. Of the mass of German air power circling above, 60 HE-111s were about to make for Biggin Hill, 
48 Dornier 17s and JU-88s were heading for Kenley. Escorting these two groups were 410 ME-109s and 73 ME-110s. KG-1, or Kampgeschwalder-1, on its way to Biggin Hill, decided to keep its plan simple. They would let their large number of escorts keep the British fighters at bay while they delivered their loads. But KG-76, heading for Kenley, decided on a three-part attack. Bombers would head in and dive-bomb the buildings. Then, Dornier 17s would wreck the runway. And finally, the specially trained 9th Staffel, flying Dornier 17s as well, would come in low without fighter cover and hit anything left standing. The first plan was simple, but using numbers. The second plan was complex, but not overly clever. And again, they were relying on numbers. The rigid thinking and habit of blindly following orders did not leave much room to think outside the box for the Luftwaffe pilots. On a few occasions, trickery was used and paid huge dividends for the attackers. Although not covered previously, two days ago on the 16th, a small group of JU-88s casually approached the RAF base at Bryce Norton, as if to land. They were hoping to be mistaken for Blemens. The plan worked, and only at the last second, when they opened up their throttles, did they drop their bombs, causing significant damage. But this idea of something other than smacking your opponent straight in the mouth never occurred to them on a large scale. But the weather, fate, or karma decided to take a hand. As the bombers formed up and headed over the channel, they ran into clouds and lost cohesion. By the time they cleared the clouds and formed up again, the JU-88s, who were supposed to go in first, were behind everyone. And the specially trained 9th Staffel in the Dornier 17s, who were supposed to be last, were the first to reach Kenley. It was 1.22 p.m. The Dorniers had been able to fly in under the radar, as planned. But they were spotted by the Observer Corps, who dutifully called in their location and bearing. The ladies in the ops room at Kenley calmly watched one of their own move the hostile marker over their station. Within seconds of that, they heard the Beaufort's guns sound off. So the Dorniers were getting it from the ground and from the sky, as 111 Squadron from Croydon came down on them. Kenley's fighters, 615 Squadron, were already on their way to help Biggin Hill. Those bandits had been plotted and help was asked for. But there was one more unexpected surprise for the bombers at Kenley. Besides the Beaufort's guns taking aim, there were also special rockets being fired up, like flak, purposefully in front of the bombers. These rockets were attached to cables, now extended up as far as they would go. Normally, this would not have been a problem for the bombers, but the Ninth Staffel were trained to go lower than traditional bombers to improve their accuracy. So the Dorniers came in, but the head Dornier on the left-hand section of three came in a little higher than the others. So they were safe from the cables, but now they were in a better position for the AA guns, and they opened fire.
The lead plane was hit and caught fire. Partially out of control, it made contact with a cable that dragged it down and forced it to slam into a bungalow at the edge of the airfield. One of the other Dornier's wings caught a cable, but that pilot, not having to worry about his aircraft being on fire, had the presence of mind to bank right and watch the cable slide off his wing. The pilot of the lead plane on the right-hand section was hit in the chest from a Lewis light machine gun and begged his navigator to get him home. Without hesitation, navigator Wilhelm Ilg took the control and straightened out the plane, making for home. Another of the Dorniers was then taken out by hurricanes from 111 Squadron. So, within minutes of their attack, two of the bombers were down, and the rest had suffered some level of damage. They headed for home, being pursued by 111 Squadron, who would take out two more of them. Two more lost an engine and ended up coming down in the channel or just making it to French soil. This left five still in the air, struggling against the British fighters, their own damaged engine or injured crew to make it home. Two others landed at airfields in France, and one crash landed on the sand dunes at Calais, and another crashed at Abbeville. The last Dornier, the one being flown by its navigator, made a wheels-down landing. But his pilot died on the way to the hospital. Navigator Wilhelm Ilg was awarded the Knight's Cross for his bravery. Back at Biggin Hill, Sandy Sanders and Douglas Hone of 615 Squadron were responding to a call from Biggin Hill for assistance. While a few miles out, the two pilots noticed bombs falling in between their aircraft, literally yards away from Sandy's wing. They looked up and saw Dorniers, who were trying to be clever. Sandy pushed hard on the throttle and climbed as vertically as he could. He knew in seconds the plane would stall, but if he was lucky, that would be all the time he needed. His gun started blazing away at the closest Dornier. His luck held, the Dornier pilot's luck did not, and soon it was smoking and aflame. Then Sandy's plane stalled while he was still upside down, and he started falling. But once the nose was pointed to the ground, it was easy to get the plane under control and then head again for Biggin Hill. But then he saw another Dornier and gave chase. The pursued Dornier, probably panicking, turned hard, which left a Ju-88 also banking steeply right in front of Sandy's guns. And since one bandit in front of you is worth two anywhere else in the sky, he let rip. He purposefully aimed for the pilot, the fastest way to bring down a bomber. There were, after all, many more to contend with, and soon saw the plane dive and head straight into the woods at Ide Hill, a few miles south of Biggin Hill and close to Churchill's private residence at Chartwell. By now, the highest flying Dornier 17s were over Kenley. They arrived second, like the plan called for, but they were already intensely engaged by RAF fighters. They dropped their loads, but only some of them hit the airfield. Still, it was enough. All but one of the hangars were gone. Kenley's power supply was gone, and would be for hours more. Four hurricanes and other training aircraft were wrecked, and nine RAF personnel lay dead. But for all that, 
Kindley's use as an airfield and sector station would continue. Soon after, the JU-88s, which were supposed to come in first, then came in. But by this time, the airstrip was covered with smoke, and any accurate mop-up bombing was impossible. They decided to make for West Malling. As for Biggin Hill, its damage was much lighter, and this is despite the fact that nine times the tonnage of bombs were dropped in a fairly undisturbed bomb run. This is because the bombs there mostly hit the landing area, which was relatively easy to repair. The other bombs landed in the woods to the east. The price for this success was four Dorniers shot down, with the remaining five damaged. Of course, the German fighters providing cover for these two raids engaged and were engaged by RAF fighters. However, it's worth looking at how they define success at this stage of the conflict. If the Luftwaffe embroiled the British fighters to the point that the defenders had no opportunity to attack the bombers, that was a success now. But a few weeks ago, that would have not been the case. Before, the bombers were only used as bait to force fighter command into the air. Then the Messerschmitts would have their chance to decisively win the air war. Now, they were only to defend the bombers while they carried out their tasks, which, if successful, would make fighter command's job impossible. You can't focus your limited planes, take off and land, if your radar is out, your airfields are cratered, your planes are destroyed faster than they can be replaced, and your pilots are dead or wounded. But now for the Germans, it seemed that for their bombers to get through, adequate support now meant a fighter sweep beforehand, fighters in tight with the bombers, and lastly, fighters overhead to react to any unexpected situation. It turns out, Gehring was right, despite his flaws. And now, more German fighters were being shot down than British, and more than any plan called for. Also, more German bombers were being shot down, or severely damaged, than any plan found acceptable. But there was one potential bright spot for the Luftwaffe that could have changed all this. But most positive events were now taken as a fluke, if normal tactics were not used. For example, Oberlieutenant Gerhard Schapfel was leading some of the ME-109s ahead of the bombers heading towards Kenley and Biggin Hill. But over Dover, Schapfel saw a squadron of hurricanes climbing. It was 501, and they were on their way to Canterbury. About to order his planes to dive down and hopefully bounce the hurricanes, he paused and thought for a moment. He noticed that there was a lone weaver behind the other planes. So, ordering his men to stay put, but to cover him if need be, he moved into the sun and dove down, alone. He got within 100 yards of the weaver and fired his guns. The hurricane immediately went down in flames, and Schopfell then climbed right back into position. The other RAF fighters did not notice the attack. So Schopfeld dove down three more times, and each time took out the last plane. But on the fourth one, he got too close, and pieces from the exploding hurricane hit his plane. Soon oil was covering his canopy. 
the other Hurricanes finally noticed something and scrambled. At this, the rest of the ME-109s dove down to intercept. But, as it happened so many times before, the dogfight was inconclusive. This should have been an invaluable lesson for the Luftwaffe, but instead, although at an extremely high cost, it ended up serving the RAF better in the long run. 501's formation had been Fighter Command textbook, but clearly something had to change. Fortunately for the British, three of the pilots were only wounded and would fight again another day. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. As the German bombers limped back to France, Ulrich Steinhilper's unit was to take off and give them cover. But once in the air, they were told to strafe Manston. The German radio workers had picked up on British chatter. That Manston was being used by many squadrons for refueling, thereby making it a prime target. Steinhilber took his men in low over Margate and approached the long-suffering airfield, which in fact had already been hit that day. The fighters opened up their guns and destroyed two Spitfires from 266 Squadron and a Hurricane from 17 Squadron. The British pilots standing next to their planes dove to the side and barely escaped. But then, the German guns hit a petrol truck, and as it exploded, he noticed a man had been standing next to it. He hated fighting and killing, but was doing his duty. Steinhilper and his men pulled away and headed for home. As mentioned earlier, Luftflotte III planned on attacking the airfields at Gosport, Ford, and Thorny Island. Added to this was the radar station at Poling. But we also mentioned that these airfields did not belong to Fighter Command, and as such, any damage, while horrible, would not interfere with Fighter Command's ability to wage war. So at 1.30 that early afternoon, just over a 100 JU-87s took off and met up with their escorts. 55 109s were to provide a fighter sweep ahead of the bombers. 32 109s were to stay close to the bombers, and at least 70 fighters were to stay high above. The raids on the radar station at Poling and the naval air station at Ford were unopposed. At Poling, stores and several houses were destroyed. At Ford, the bombers were able to hit several hangars and a few men's sleeping huts. They also caused four service deaths and ten civilian ones. However, finders from 602 Squadron showed up at Ford just as the bombing was finished. 
The same thing happened to the bombers who had just flown over Pauline. They were then met by 152 Squadron. Also, the bombers leaving the airfield at Thorny Island soon ran into 235 Squadron of Coastal Command. Six service deaths were left in their wake. But the unopposed bombing came full stop at Gosport. The highest flying ME-109s were engaged by 234 Squadron. But since the hurricanes were still climbing, they were also engaged by the escorts flying close to the bombers. And despite the overwhelming numbers of the 109s, three of the overhead escorts would be downed. As this dogfight started up, hurricanes from 4-3 and 601 squadrons went after the JU-87s, just as they were lining up for their bomb run over Gosport. Because of 234 Squadron going after the 109s, 43 and 601 Squadron were more or less free to tear into the JU-87s, and did so with relish. Ten of the 28 JUs were shot down while on their approach. The other JU formations suffered casualties as well, but not as bad as the Gosport group. Then 213 Squadron from Exeter showed up, and helped pursue the now low-level flying escorts trying to get back to base. Those pilots had one eye on their pursuers and one on their fuel gauge. As the Germans landed back at base, they counted up their losses. Eight ME-109s and 17 Stukas did not return home. And only two of those pilots were rescued. But almost as bad Many of the returning MEs and Stukas suffered from severe damage. This victory cost Fighter Command five lost aircraft, with seven more damaged. But only two of their pilots had been killed. The Germans lost 26 airmen on this sortie. Six more were taken prisoner, and another six were wounded. That afternoon, it was time for Luftflot II to take to the skies again. And again, sector stations would be hit, with Hornchurch and North Wheel being their targets. By 5 o'clock that afternoon, 58 Dornier 17s were heading to Hornchurch, and 51 HE-111s were approaching North Wheel. Altogether, both groups of bombers were protected by 120 ME-109s and 20 ME-110s. But the radar in these areas were working just fine. An 11 and 12 group responded by sending up 143 Hurricanes and Spitfires. Soon a majority of the RAF fighters clashed with both groups and their escorts over Kent and Essex. But suddenly, as both groups of bombers reached their targets, they turned and headed for home. The British aircraft stayed with them and watched the bombers drop their loads on the army barracks at Shoeburyness and the Royal Marine Barracks at Deal. The British pilots hoped for the best for the men below, but were more than happy to take this passive victory. It turns out the clouds had been moving in that afternoon, and by then Hornchurch and North Weald were hidden from the skies. The bombers had remembered Kesselring's order that no bombs were to be dropped near London, Hence, the turning around and then dropping their bombs. This tactic worked as only four bombers did not return home. The real fighting was between the fighters. However, both sides drew blood equally, as Fighter Command lost nine planes 
and the Luftwaffe lost 10. One of the fighters chasing the bombers was piloted by Tony Wood Scowen, the weak-sided pilot from 43 Squadron. It was said of him that he looked like a rabbit, but was as blind as a bat. And yes, he made a normal landing that afternoon, which was abnormal for him. And then he learned that he had been awarded the DCF. He now matched his brother's achievements, and so worked up the courage to ask Bunny, a girl both brothers loved, to marry him. She said yes, and Patrick, the brother, was happy for both of them. That day's fighting meant the Luftwaffe lost 53 aircraft, with another 31 damaged. Fighter Command had 31 destroyed, with another 39 damaged on the ground. But again, the planes, for the most part, could be replaced. Lord Beaverbrook was doing everything humanly possible to see to it. The British problem was becoming one of pilots. But this combined loss, human and material, meant that August 18th was truly one of the hardest days. Hitler, meanwhile, saw what was happening, despite the protestations of Goering, and postponed the invasion to September 17th. Total reported losses to date were 248 and 485, respectively. That night, the activity was comparatively light, again, probably due to exhaustion, as the sorties continued around 10 p.m. Raids were plotted around the Thames Estuary and Mine Lane was suspected, and the southeast continued to be the Luftwaffe's focus until 1 a.m. A few bombs were dropped, but the activity seemed to be mostly Mine Lane. Between 11 p.m. and 2 o'clock the next morning, about 14 raids were plotted over Wales and the Bristol area. Some of the aircraft went as far north as Liverpool. Again, a few bombs were dropped, but the Germans mostly stuck to laying mines. In East Africa, four troop ships, along with a hospital ship, left the port city of Berbera, under the cover of darkness, and headed for Egypt. They were carrying 7,000 people, including civilians. The Australian cruiser HMAS Hobart stayed behind that night to take on any inevitable stragglers and destroying any remaining equipment. This was one of the many lessons learned from Dunkirk. However, absent from the ships were many of the Somalis from the Somaliland Camel Corps. They decided to remain behind, and the British decided to let them keep their weapons. Next time, we'll see Garing make new plans with his youngbloods, Mulders and Gallen, to ensure a quick victory, while Keith Park of 11 Group makes his plans to reduce pilot losses. And on August 20th, Churchill will address the Commons, as the war was coming up on its first anniversary. He remembered what he saw at Uxbridge and what he had said to General Ismay about never was so much owed by so many to so few. If you got the audiobook, The Few, by Alex Kershaw, then you know Billy Fisk's story already. The book does a fantastic job of covering three of the seven Americans who fought in the Battle of Britain.
But in case you didn't, here's a much shorter version. William Meade Lindsley Billy Fisk III was born on June 4, 1911. He was the son of a New England banking magnate. And one of the things that I found interesting when listening to The View was that how the other two men, not rich or from prominent families, had to sneak their way to Britain, through Canada, then France. There were police and other federal agents at the ports, train stations, and airports to make sure young American men did not, in fact, sneak off to Britain to fight because it was against the law. But not Billy Fisk. He attended school in France and then went to Trinity Hall, Cambridge in 1928. He then worked at a London office of international bankers. He eventually married Rose Bingham, the Countess of Warwick in Maidenhead. He had discovered the sport of bobsledding in France and loved the speed and danger. As the driver of the first five-man U.S. bobsled team, the U.S. team took the gold at the 1928 Winter Olympics in Switzerland. He then went on to win the gold again in the 1932 Winter Olympics in New York. However, he chose not to participate in the 1936 Winter Olympics in Germany. It's believed due to Hitler's politics. He returned to America, but then soon sailed for the U.K. in 1939. One of his friends on board the ship was a member of the 601 Squadron, the Millionaire's Squadron. Billy loved flying and speed and the danger of it, so volunteered himself to fighter command. To get by the law in the U.S., he pretended to be Canadian. Never mind winning two gold medals for the U.S., now he was Canadian and wanted to fight the Germans. Money does have its privileges. As we already covered, Billy Fisk's plane was damaged while taking out a dive bomber. His plane caught fire, and Billy's hands and feet were burnt. He could have gotten out, but instead chose to bring in his plane for a landing, which he did, but it exploded after he was taken out of it. But the damage and shock to his body was too much, and he died the next day. He was 29 years old. His funeral was held on August 20, 1940, and his coffin was covered in the Union Jack and Stars and Stripes. Fisk was buried in the St. Mary and St. Blaise churchyard in Boxgrove, Sussex. The inscription on his gravestone read, He died for England. On July 4, 1941, the American ambassador John Wynett, who was covered in great detail in the book Citizens of London, another audible recommendation, unveiled a plaque in the crypt of St. Paul's Cathedral that read, An American citizen who died that England might live. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Um, sorry the show ran long again. Just trying to pack it all in there. Um, I just wanted to quickly thank those who donated to the show so I can keep buying reference material. Um, Andy S. from Cordova, Tennessee. Uh, Daniel B. from London, U.K., James F. from Maidenhead, UK, and Pierre G. from Quebec, Canada. And also I'd like to thank Penny L. for ordering some CDs. Um, volume 5 uh, of the CDs is ready if you wanted to get it on the website, worldwar2podcast.net. I've also added some more books to the Audible list. 
And uh, just to let you know, Paul Finch, who handles my website for me, thank God, um, is currently working on uh, making each volume have its own distinct cover. So he's working on that. I'll let you know when he has something ready. And another talented young Scotsman has volunteered uh, to help me put an app together. So I'm working on that, um, or should I say he's working on that. Um, And I'll let you know when there's more uh, information out there. And lastly, I would like to encourage all of you to check out Laszlo Montgomery's The China History Podcast. He covers history, events, culture, language, uh, important people. And even though he doesn't cover it in a linear fashion like I do, he certainly does touch upon different parts of World War II, uh, some of the events that came before it and after it. So it's definitely worth checking out. And he's certainly making my job a lot easier. And you can also check out his website at China History Podcast. So again, thank you for listening, and I'll see you as soon as I can with episode 52. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.